Throughout the ages, humans have evolved with every challenge they've faced. And throughout the ages, there's one common denominator that has always been there, lurking in our minds, a sort of proverbial wind in our sails sort of thing, where we become our own worst enemy and drag our feet in the dirt. It's always been there, and it always will be. Change. Whether it's fearing change itself or embracing it head on, it's never easy. But another common denominator can lighten the load, make it easier. Our friends and family. Because just like that guy said once in that song, we can get by with a little help from our friends. I'm Master Sergeant Andy Sinclair, and this is episode 36 of the Maniac Radio Show. We're going to do things a little bit different in this episode. We've put together a series of three interviews from three colonels with three different messages, all revolving around change and how as a team, your friends, your family, your Maniac family, we can get through anything and embrace the change. I mentioned three messages, resiliency, retention, recruiting, the three big R's in this episode. The first interview is with Colonel Frank Roy, 101st Air Refueling Wing Commander. Maybe you've heard of him. He has a very important message about resiliency. So grab some coffee, turn up the volume, and enjoy. Uh, good morning, everyone. This is uh, Senior Master Sergeant John Duplain. Um, I happen to be in uh, Colonel Roy's office today, and no, I'm not in trouble. Uh, and I have been in here before, but that's another story. But uh, today, uh, Colonel Roy, I want to take a few minutes to uh, come in and talk a little bit about the resilience tactical pause that the wing will be having. So, Colonel, uh, I guess we'll just jump right to it. Uh, what is a resilience tactical pause and, and why do we have that as a wing or an organization? So what a resilience tactical pause is for the 101st is still being developed. So I spent some time in D.C. last week with active duty reserve and guard wing commanders uh, at a conference and we went through what the active duty had done to this point. And uh, because it's a very complex issue, every unit is trying to find a way to have that 100% contact with their airmen. And every unit is different. So what we're doing, uh, we have until December to put ours together. And we're working with the First Sergeant's Council, the DPH chaplains, and really reaching out to a lot of the younger folks in the unit to get feedback on how to best make this a, a useful day for everyone to get that 100% contact and make it the first part of our transition to find different ways to help people. Right. And um, how did how did this whole tactical pause that we used to call it something different previously? So probably everyone thinks along the lines of a safety down day where the signal to the wing is that we're not flying today so that we can have big meetings and put everyone in, in either the hangar or the wing training center and, and talk about, put speakers out and talk about how to be safe or how to be more resilient. Uh, this is a little bit of a different scenario. I think we, we've come to understand that we don't know the right answer, so we're, we're trying all kinds of things. And part of this small group is going to develop over the next month or two uh, on how we're going to do this. So November drill and December drill are our targets, the Sunday of each drill for each group, but what it looks like is still being developed. Okay. Cool. And who's your team that you have working on that with you? Right now, it's the, the group commanders reaching out to the squadron commanders, uh, individual members of the unit that have experienced, been close to a suicide, uh, whether family members or, or direct unit members. And we're expanding that out to basically anybody that wants to help. Uh, anybody that has ideas. There's no wrong idea. Uh, Again, because of the complexities of this, this solution is not any one person, uh, you know, coming up with how they should address their squadrons. So, the squadron commanders will even do it differently. Um, we're really looking for the the best way forward, not a one day event. Right. No. Uh, sounds interesting. Sounds like you're getting a lot of a lot of feedback, a lot of information to kind of determine have, the best way to go. We have, and it's been great. And I've had uh, airmen reach out to me directly, concerned that uh, maybe we missed the deadline because active duty had a different deadline than us. Uh, and it opened up the conversation I would have never had with that airman to find out that they were really close to one of our members who committed suicide and that they wanted to help develop this day. Oh. So that's what we're looking for is everybody to feel part 
of it and yep. help develop it and move forward with a little bit less stigma and a little more um, support for everybody in the way. Oh, it sounds great. It's, uh, it's awesome that that person uh, was comfortable reaching out to you and able to do that. It seems like a, a step in the right direction in its own, in it, its own way. It worked out very well. They went uh, through their first sergeant who knew right away that I'd want to know that type of stuff and that I called the person at home on their cell phone and made sure they understood how serious we take this. Yeah, no, very cool. So um, looking into that, what initiative um, have you and your team been working on or, or looking to implement through this? So they, we were able to bring the chaplains on rather quickly uh, to try to get after that piece of the resiliency team here on the base. Uh, we've been able to secure a second director of psychological health through the Air National Guard Bureau that the job posting is out now. So it'll take a little while to get that person on board. And then just the overall checking ourselves, looking in the mirror. What are we doing that can help people? And what are we doing that maybe is, is forcing people to feel like they can't talk with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you think about like downtown, um, I know uh, your daughter and my wife work in the same organization um, down uh, medical uh, facility. What would you say that uh, that we have that places like that don't have, or places that other people may work for support? Well, my my opinion, without knowing everything that goes on out at, at some of these uh, big businesses, is that they have internal support that is refers out to the basic community uh, but not as involved as what we're trying to do and what the military is trying to do and and really getting after the problem with with additional resources as part of our team spending time and understanding that this is part of our ability to do the mission if our airmen aren't resilient and healthy that we're, you know, we have a problem doing our mission so I, I think we're putting more resources and more time towards it than uh, most of the the big companies downtown not that they don't care about their members but right. that they use community-based support and uh, we use our internal support network and then refer out to the community so I'd like to believe that we're putting more time and effort, but I'm not sure that that's accurate. Right, but the gist is that the uh, that the Maine National Guard is, is really vested in the in the individuals, and that we have resources. I could go down after this and, and talk to someone right now, right, and not have to go maybe through those layers of of. Uh, bureaucracy to kind of get me a referral out to right. see someone. Yeah, and the internal resources inside of the unit. Uh, and one of my concerns is making sure that our drill status guardsmen understand that they have all those resources, that, that they exist here on the base. So right. that'll be part of this 100% contact is just making sure that everyone understands. Yeah, because you think, too, if someone's downtown or having a bad week or bad month, um, they could pick up the phone and call Tracy or call uh, on, on when they wanted to, not just be able right. to physically walk down there. So that's right. that's a pretty big deal, too. Right. Yeah, great. Um, so, you know, you've been a maniac for a while, right? I don't want to date you. But, uh, I mean, how have things changed in the last 10 years? I mean, we, we were talking about that the other day with Colonel Barassa. <laughs> and um, just the support and the options available for people that may want to seek those out. What do you think's changed? Well, I think the resources have, have become more available and then there's a, a culture shift to where seeking the help is a sign of strength. Whereas, you know, as I was coming up as a young airman, it, it probably wasn't uh, viewed the same way. You know, I guess it, it wasn't as accepted uh, to to get help. There's still some complications with getting help because we're in the profession of arms and we need security clearances to do our jobs. And sometimes getting that help causes some questions on, on whether you can maintain that top secret security clearance. But and we'll keep working through those. Those aren't going to go away. But what we really need is everyone to get help when they need it and to, to keep working on resiliency for everyone around the way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I'd hate to have that as an obstacle for, for people not to be able to use that. Right. I mean, for you as the wing commander, someone that's been in the unit a long time, I mean, what would you say your big goals or takeaways are, are going to be for the day or the two days that we're going to have this broken up? So, you know, as a maniac, you know, over 25 years in this unit, but coming up on 34 years in the military, I'm, I'm looking for this to be the beginning 
of whatever the future looks like for our airmen to have that connection. You know, there's a lot of stories about how we used to deploy and you had a tighter family connection because of how we deployed. Yeah. In the deployment model we're using now, which is more of a crowdsourcing deployment, uh, we end up with our folks not necessarily knowing the people in the shop next to them. Family days and things like that, the spouse, key spouse, key volunteer programs are, are helping get after that. But things like this, uh, my what would make me happy sitting on my deck watching the sunset in the future is knowing that we started a change where a bunch of our young airmen were willing to talk and, and help each other and resolve some of these problems before they ever get to crisis, whether it's financial or relationship or just needing someone to talk to. And that the folks that do come forward that have issues, that it gets in the way of their security clearance, that we work with them and find other options and that we help them be you know, good parents, good family members. And, you know, that's what's most important. Maybe they'd work a different job. You right. Know, we have other options to, to help people find a way forward. Right. So everything, every issue, every problem is not going to be career ending. And knowing that I could come in and, and seek the support and help, even though, you know, uh, even if it was on me or not. I could still get a fair shake and know that the, the wing yeah. and the unit, I mean, we have a lot of time and money invested in people. So to get them into a different spot or job, it seems like the right thing to do for a lot of reasons. It's the same thing you would do for anybody in your family. And we're all, we're all brothers and sisters out here. Yeah, no, absolutely. What do you say your message is to airmen and, and, and wing members that are going through this day? I mean, what do you, what do you want them to be thinking about doing as they're going through this? So I think we'll start an October drill with more of a broad brush of what what the young airmen, what our entire wing thinks is the right thing to do. And then we'll try throughout the weekend to keep it flexible enough that we actually get to a result of a 100% contact, a more open discussion, more personal type conversations and whatever that might be. That's why we're not setting it from the top down of, you know, everyone will get into a hangar and we'll talk to them about what's going on or what what they have for resources. Uh, right. I think those discussions are appropriate and they're available. But this is more about building back that personal connection so that you know that the person next to you is having a hard day and you can ask the hard questions and you know roughly how to get them help. Uh, and then when you get them to the trained people and use our resources that we all rally behind them and support. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you think our young people can do that by, by being vocal, by talking, asking questions, put, projecting their ideas out. I, I think we need to develop that that environment and we have to be a little careful sometimes with the chain of command and using the first sergeants and the immediate supervisors and going through the commanders. On this day, you know, I think we have to blend a lot of that and the best idea might come from someone who's sitting in the corner who doesn't normally talk. And we need to be looking for the airmen that have their head down, that don't want to make eye contact, that don't want to be part of this, because they're probably the ones that need our support the most. Yeah, no, it's a good idea to take a look around. It seems like a good day to do a lot of listening and, and see what's happening. Yeah. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? Any, any, anything you could think of? I didn't cover. You want to? No, I think there's a couple things that the chiefs have been doing that uh, will become visible in the next month or so with the chiefs picking out airmen from around the wing and introducing them and building up the, the relationships um, through the different ranks on the base. More of a support mentor type role. The force development stuff that Chief Osgood's working on with the Airman Leadership Summits. Um, and the, the cooperation that I see with the group commanders and the squadron commanders makes me very hopeful for the leadership team being in the right frame of mind for this to really make a difference with our airmen. But we need we need the airmen to want to make a difference from the bottom up. Right. And that I can, I can provide all the support that I can gather for them with resources and time. I just need everybody to get after this from the newest student flight member to the oldest person on the base. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's good stuff. The um, and thinking about it too, it reminds me of like the safety timeout that no one, 
anyone can call a timeout no matter what we're doing on the hangar or out on, on the flight line and so sometimes you not using your chain of command just makes sense if if someone's in that situation or sometimes it's the tool you have in front of you right at that that time so if i've only got someone's phone number you know maybe i'd have to leapfrog the first sergeant and go to my commander because uh, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time sure yeah sure yeah, that, i think that's how we intervene and be be good wingmen good airmen yeah no good well i think uh, i think that's it i'm um, looking forward to the day and and i know we'll uh, hopefully get some feedback how, how are people supposed to solicit feedback from the day of of um maybe i didn't feel comfortable speaking up during the day sure and just a big crowd and my peers and you know what what would you say to that I think as, as we try to keep it flexible going through, there should be an immediate feedback loop with uh, with some of the folks being, what, you know, some of the people leading the discussions are watching for that to allow for that flexibility and break off in even smaller groups, follow on conversations. It's not a one and done where we check the box. I'll send a report to the Bureau when we're done that we did it on you know, the Sunday of November drill and cleaned up the 100% contact on the, the Sunday of December drill. And to the Bureau, it'll look like we're complete. But for us, it's just the beginning and we'll just keep looking for it. So if someone comes out on the Monday after December drill and says, hey, we missed it and we needed to do this, we'll just try to figure out how to do that. It, right. it just needs to become part of our culture. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people will be looking forward to it. And I think um, these conversations are certainly going to help and get everyone, you know, on board and aware and feeling better about it. Sure. It's a tough conversation and there's no right answers. And we're all people that like to fix things. Yeah. But I think what we can do to fix this is just continually work on it. And if everybody's trying to find the right answer, you know, we'll, we'll make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Colonel. It's been a pleasure and uh, looking forward to getting this out and, and making sure people are aware of uh, how this is going to play out over the next couple of months. So uh, thanks, have a good day. John. Appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Colonel Roy, for talking with us. We know you're busy, so thank you very much. And thank you, Senior Master Sergeant Duplain, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do the interview. Okay, so not only were we able to snag the wing commander for this episode, but we also got the vice wing commander on the mic. Colonel Matt Barassa is going to talk to us about retention, why it's important, and some ways that we can improve retention throughout the wing. Here he is. This is Senior Master Sergeant John Duplain from the Public Affairs Office, and uh, yeah, I'm back at it again. I was able to uh, get an interview with the Vice Wing Commander, Colonel Matt Barassa, and uh, today he's going to uh, tell us a little bit about why he wanted to be on the podcast. So welcome, Colonel. Thanks. It's your debut, I believe, right? I believe it is, John. Yes. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, anytime. No, we're, we're excited, and I'm sure... Um, a lot of the wing members will be happy to hear from uh, hear from you and hear your perspective and things that are going on. So, uh, I guess I saw you after a meeting with the colonel this morning, and uh, I said, "Hey, anytime you want to get on," and you were like, "Yeah, let's do it." So, what uh, what do you have on your mind? What do you want to go over? Well, one thing uh, coming to mind, John, is uh, this time of year the recruiting folks. Uh, it's the end of the fiscal year in the beginning of a new one and they have recruiting goals and that's great uh, we love new faces here but what uh, we believe just as important as recruiting is retaining our current folks current qualified folks so just wanted to talk briefly about uh, our retention efforts and what we can do to get folks to stay with us for as long as they can and enjoy a, a fruitful uh, career as long as like I have I've been here uh, uh, over 17 years now and I thoroughly enjoy it. I would imagine everyone else would, but realistically speaking, there's a lot of demands on our folks these days, uh, both on base and off base, of course. So just wanted to talk about how we can keep folks here uh, for as long as possible and, uh, of course, make it a, a place that they want to stay at. Sure. And now you've been um, in a leadership role 
for for quite some time uh, up at the ops group and working your way right, through. Right. Yeah. yeah. What 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 is your concerns as far as retention wise? What do you what do you have for ideas that that uh, to make it to make it work better for people? Or? Sure. Well, candidly, you know, uh, when I first joined the unit here in two thousand and two, I believe, yeah, July two thousand two. Uh, a little bit different place. It was uh, the ops tempo has been on a steady increase uh, throughout that time, and there's a lot of demands on our folks, deployments, day to day mission covers, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's uh, you know it's very intense at times, especially with deployments and younger families and that sort of thing. Uh, more and more like active duty, I hear, and and to some degree that's true. So we just wanted to talk to folks and and say you know. You mentioned, well, yeah, I've been the squadron commander before this up at the operations. And, uh, you know, we always talk, what can we do? Uh, certainly, we like to lead from the front and deploy. Uh, but my, my children, for example, are, are a little bit older now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've done it for quite a while. And I understand, especially younger families, for instance, with the uh, deployment schedule, uh, that impacts them. So... Um, you know, the missions of the Air Force, uh, we have to take care of them, but how can we take care of people and, and get them to stay? And we just wanted to get ideas. And, of course, we're always open to ideas from uh, our folks because they know better than we do usually what it takes to stay here. Uh, we talked about, for instance, uh, some folks get uh, maybe disenchanted with, a, with their current vocation or the unit they're at. Well, we just want to remind them that, hey, uh, you don't have to stay there. Uh, you can uh, transfer to a different unit on base or a different vocation for that matter. Um, you know, we have several people. I remember uh, we had uh, one airman up at Ops. Uh, he worked uh, with the flight records department. Liked it, but it wasn't his true passion. And rather than uh, get disenchanted and, and leave the unit, he found a different vocation in security and loves it. Oh, cool. Uh, and I know that's just not a singular story. Uh, there's many folks out there that have done that. So the first thing I would say is if you're not happy where you are and you're thinking of leaving the unit, just take pause for a moment and think, uh, do I really want to leave the Air National Guard or maybe I could do something else? Maybe I haven't figured out what my true talent is, passion, and uh, maybe I should look and talk to other folks, uh, colleagues, for example, or folks that work in other departments that you may be interested in and say, hmm, yeah, maybe I should try that instead of just leaving the unit. Right. I don't know how many times I've heard folks that have actually left and then regretted it. You know, uh, I, I believe I have the, uh, uh, the experience of both working in, inside the gate and outside the gate to realize that uh, a lot of jobs out there in industry and the and the business world, for example, uh, aren't as uh, enjoyable as this job. And, you know, it's easy for me to say because uh, I have a passion for flying, a passion for my current role here as the vice wing commander. Uh, so I believe my job's easy because it's uh, a passion I have and, and time goes by very quickly. So, no, that's uh, great. We just want to make sure folks, uh, instead of leaving the unit entirely, take pause and think, maybe I just need a different vocation. Sure. And what, what do you think those, so let's say I'm, I'm not happy where I'm at, I'm not, promotions can sometimes get jammed up. That can be for people. Mm -hmm. Job satisfaction may, may suffer a little bit. Yeah. Or it could be a combination of life stresses on the outside. Where, how do we start that dialogue? Who, what was your suggestion on that? How would I, if I was in that situation and, mm -hmm. and my ETS is coming up, what, what do you, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, certainly you can talk to the retention folks, the recruiting folks, uh, your commanders, flight commanders. Um, colleagues would have a good idea, uh, unit career advisors, that sort of thing. Or if you have a feedback session with uh, your supervisor, uh, it can be an open dialogue. You know, that's a good point, uh, John, about the promotion. I've talked to a lot of folks and, well, you know, there's no opportunity for me to advance. Right. And I'll say, sure, maybe not in your current position, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, let's say you're a master sergeant and you say, well, there, there's really no opportunities for senior master sergeant where I'm at. 
that may be true. Uh, however, uh, you know, there were several senior master sergeant and even chief master sergeant openings uh, on this base and at Joint Force Headquarters as well Yeah, uh, that folks have gone to and enjoyed that promotion. So, uh, And that also kind of forces you out of your uh, comfort zone, if you will. You know, people get comfortable uh, and, you know, they, they don't like to leave. Right. And then they may get frustrated because they don't want to leave and there's no promotion opportunities currently available. So I would say, you know, push that comfort level and uh, talk talk to those folks. There are several folks who have done that uh, that may be giving you, be able to give you some great advice and say, you know what, uh, at first I was hesitant, but looking back, it was a great idea and I'm glad I did it. Yeah, and thinking about that too, I'm thinking of Chief Eric McDonald. Mm-hmm. He was a fuel cell guy back when I was in hydraulics, mm-hmm. and um, and he moved on, and now he's a chief. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, Ben Poland just got hired up to mm-hmm. to that job, and I saw Rick Johnson this morning. We were talking about Ben. He used to be in the parachute shop mm-hmm. back in the day in the hangar. So you know, think- Stephanie Ware at Ops, for example. Uh, she went to Augusta. Yep, and now is at NGB. Right, and loves her. Uh, her current uh, job as a chief. Right. Yeah, Chief Fossis was the same boat. She was e- EPP'd and then, and then worked her way up, got to Augusta, got that exposure, and then and right. did that too. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Now that I've actually thought about it, there's a lot of examples where people have moved on and, and done really well. So Exactly. Huh, that's pretty cool. I was talking to Chief this morning, and he said the um, Unit Career Advisor program's coming back, and that's something I thought was pretty interesting a year out. Um, you're going to be interviewing, talking to people, seeing how they're at, if they have any obstacles. I mean, a lot of times it's nose to the grindstone. We're doing our CDCs, our PME, our training. We have other people to train. It's just not time to be thinking that far ahead. So I think this is going to be uh, getting this program kind of uh, back up and, uh, and going full bore. I think it's going to be really insightful for a lot of people to sit down and have that one-on-one with their commander and and talk through that so yeah i hope that uh you know i always talk to a lot of folks who uh they don't seem comfortable talking about themselves marketing themselves and that hey by the way sir i want to do this this or this and i always tell them please let us know don't keep it a secret um, and don't be afraid to market yourself a little bit. Right. Uh, you know, people that want to do things, that should come out in the feedback session. Uh, and that's uh, part of our job as wing leadership is to try to get out there as much as possible and meet folks and talk to them. Uh, that was a funny story. We were recently deployed, and I was sitting there at a restaurant with some folks and didn't know this one person, and, and they didn't know me. And uh, finally that person looked at me and said, You're awful quiet. You didn't say much. And uh, they said, are you a pilot? I said, yeah, I'm a pilot. And then the person that brought them goes, do you know who that is? They said, no, we don't know who it is. And then they told them, and that person got all embarrassed. And I looked them right in the eye and said, because you don't know who I am, that's my fault. That's not your fault. It means I haven't gotten out to your shop, your workplace, introduced myself, and gotten to know you. And don't be afraid and don't be shy about uh, when we're in the same area to introduce yourself. Uh, I always try to introduce myself, but please introduce yourself because we want to get to know everybody. And there's 1,100 of you and a few of us, but that's one of our goals is to try to get to know you. By doing that, we're able to, when opportunities exist, say, hey, uh, so-and-so has this background or may be interested in this job, and uh, maybe we can help uh, send people in the right direction to further their career uh, because... uh, I'm no longer interested in moving my career up. I'm interested in helping folks here because if I can help you, you'll help me get the mission achieved. Yeah, getting the right people in the right spot. Right. Certainly going to make a difference. And if we can do that, then you'll stay. And then you'll refer folks that you know, relatives and friends, to us, and that will help with recruitment. Yeah. So if we're at a promotion or retirement and, and uh, I'm an airman and I happen to see you, you're, you're encouraging people to walk up and stick their hand out and say, hey, Colonel, I'm, I'm so-and-so and I work down in this shop and, and I just wanted to introduce always, myself. Yeah. Always. Uh, and yes, absolutely. Uh, we try to do that, uh, but, you know, especially in larger uh, 
social situation, that sort of thing. There's a lot of people there. But uh, the last thing I want folks to, to think is that uh, we didn't try to get to know you for whatever reason, uh, because uh, our folks are the ones that get the mission done, not yeah. me. Yeah. And uh, if, you know, if I don't introduce myself, please take a moment and introduce yourself. Yeah, I'll I be think very you, happy that you did that. To as me from a supervisor point is making sure that I can even take my people and say, hey, Colonel, this is so-and-so new to the shop and, and start that dialogue, too, because it's much easier for us in these positions to do that. So mm-hmm. I encourage supervisors to take that opportunity, too, to maybe break the ice and introduce people when you have that opportunity as well. Right. And that also includes your innovative ideas. Um, you know, if you have a good idea, once again, don't keep that a secret. By all means, let us know. Um doesn't mean we can always follow through with it, but uh, if we don't know and if you never say, hey, sir or ma'am, I, what about doing things this way? Uh, you know, it, we'll, we would never know unless you say it. Right. So don't be shy about that either. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think there, there's a lot of a lot of change going on Air Force wide with that. And people are, are looking to embrace those changes. So it's pretty it's, it's amazing, I think, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you and I talked last week about uh, how long have you been here, for right. example. <laughs> oh, I've been here uh, since 1997, so. Right. And, you know, since 97, I think we were talking about the uh, programs and policies in place to help our airmen with, uh, you know, stressful situations, and that sort of thing. Right. And I asked you, you know, how has that changed over the years? And you said by leaps and bounds, right? Yeah. Back in the day, there wasn't har- there was hardly anything. Remember, I get a commissary card, <laughs> right? If you remember those, but yeah, no, it has changed a lot, and it's it's um, that the programs are for real, and, and I know working in five hundred five, or we get to see the inner workings a little bit more, but the amount of effort and thought process that you guys put into it mm-hmm. is um, is something that people I don't think always get to see or appreciate. So I will say, if they if they have issues, they should definitely definitely reach out to a peer or a friend or, or a supervisor, whatever they're comfortable with, and, and work their way up because mm-hmm. uh, people here do care and they spend a lot of time and energy putting these programs and efforts together and making sure they're getting the right team aligned for that. So That's true. I mean, without our people, without you, uh, the mission will not get done. And, uh, you know, our job as wing leadership is to help you uh, as much as on a personal level as we can and, and a vocational level. To include, if you're not happy where you are, yep. uh, let somebody know, right. uh, and we'll work to find the right place for you. Yeah, that's good to know. Well, Colonel, I, if you have anything else to add, I'd certainly love to hear it. Uh, no, I think that'll do it for today, John. I appreciate the time, and I hope uh, our folks uh, will tune in and, and listen to this and uh, and truly get the message that uh, we want to do what it takes to keep folks here. Uh, for a long and prosperous career. Absolutely. And remember, if you see uh, Colonel Barassa around, make sure you introduce yourself. So he's, he's going to be looking for you. But uh, again, Colonel, thanks again for, for taking the time to get on and uh, and talking about issues that are important to you. So I think it's, it's good, and hopefully you'll get some great feedback from it. So. My pleasure, John. I appreciate it. Another shout out to Senior Master Sergeant Duplain for doing this interview, and thank you, Colonel Barassa, for speaking with us. Retention is always good to keep in mind, so if you know someone who's looking to get out or possibly transfer units, take the time to talk with them and let them know there are options and that there's a home for everyone. Speaking from a public affairs perspective, the shop has started a new video series called The Maniac Minute. Working with the Chief's Council, each video will highlight an airman from around the wing and give them a chance to talk about their craft, their specialty, and help spread the word to both our external audience and internal audience. Maybe you've been out here for 20 years but have no idea what the fuel cell does. These videos will help educate all of us. And who knows, maybe it will make you want to cross-train. But at the very least, it'll help you become a better ambassador for the 101st. Alright, the last interview is with Colonel Jeff Rosenblatt. He's going to share with us his story and how he was recruited into the Maniac Guard. Now, I will say this. I've been doing interviews like this for seven years, and I've never heard a story quite like his. Stay tuned and listen to his amazing story. (laughs) 
Okay, so I'm sitting here with, with Colonel Jeff Rosenblatt. Uh, he is down at the clinic. He just recently made 06, and uh, he has a pretty interesting story that I figured that we could uh, share with the Maine Air National Guard. Uh, and uh, you know what? I'm just going to let him tell you the story. So, uh, Colonel, thank you for agreeing to do this. You're welcome. <laughs> so, sir, can you give us a brief backstory about uh, who you are and where you came from and, and all that jazz? Sure, I'd love to do that. The, uh, the story... Uh, the way how I initially described this has to do with at, the, at yesterday's promotion of I've, I've heard once it was approved and that it, it takes a couple of years before it actually happens. But many people had come up to me and said, boy, I never thought that that you never thought that you'd be a colonel and, you know, in the Air National Guard. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I actually brings me back to the beginning of the story was is that it really, in certain ways, I'm less surprised about that, about other parts of my life, because in my civilian life, I'm a cardiologist and I've been a cardiologist for uh, 25, 30 years. And I was, I actually, my initial struggle of what I was gonna do with my life actually started as some uncertainty of that I was going to be a cardiologist, I actually felt some certainty of something that I wanted to do with the Air Force of the Air National Guard from a young age. So, but I, I had put it off. I always had this really strong desire to serve. And I do remember I had done really well in high school. And I, in this part, we didn't hear yesterday, but I'd done really hard because I, I thought about it and I'd done really well in high school and everyone just really expected that I was going to go to some really top school and I freaked them out. I didn't want to go to college. I actually, uh, I wanted to do, I wanted to serve somehow. And at the time I wanted to join the Peace Corps when I was, and I graduated high school when I was young and I was 17. And, and then um, my guidance counselors and my teachers, they were, they were just like pulling their hair out of their head. And uh, so, and then I, I started that process and I was only 17 and I really had no skill because usually I like to send you in like some, someone has to make a farm or, you know, I sort of had a farm or do some engineering things. So I didn't really have that. So I finally caved in and I did what everyone peer pressure on my parents. And I did, I, I went to college for uh, one year and I, it was, um, let's just say it was a, cha it was a challenging, crazy year as a lot of 17 year old boys when they start their freshman year of college. But I always sort of had an interest in flying. I always wanted to, to fly and my real goal was to become a pilot. And what I actually did was, um, was uh, I, after my first year, I took a leave of absence and I actually drove cab in the Midwest in Wisconsin and I went to flying school. And then I got my pilot's license and then I really actually thought about um, about uh, being a, a real, some kind of pilot, either in the Air Force or commercial pilot. Because I, I also like the opportunity to, I, I always felt like if there was a difficult situation, I, I felt really like in control and wouldn't mind being that guy in, 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 the, in the front pilot seat. So this, the, the, the comical part of this was is that what it turned out happening after I got my license and I wanted to get a higher level certificate, um, I had to take the colorblind test and with they're called the Ishihara charts where you got to see those numbers and, and I, it, was, it was comical because it was like, you know, the first one's an easy one, everyone can see it even a colorblind, that's like 23. And the next one, I said, there's no number there. There's no number. And so they kept flipping him. And then I realized like I was hosed for a career as a, as a, as a top gun pilot. So I actually struggled for a while then what, what I was really going to do. And I still flew as I love, I, I really just have a passion about aviation and flying and all that type of stuff. But then I went through college and I got a, a couple of different degrees. And I ended up going to medical school and not on any health profession scholarship or, uh, and I just worked at Dice Hearts actually for eight years. I went to UMaine and that's how I paid for school back then. And, but all that whole time, I still, I knew, you know, what was going on. And back here, there was Dow Air Force Base and I knew about the maniacs in the Air National Guard. 
And I interviewed it a few times, but it was just very, very difficult at the time with the demands of, of, of medical school. And, and but uh, finally, about when I and I worked my, my wife and I and I my wife I met my wife from Bangor when I was going to Arno, and we worked really, really, really hard to um, to uh, to finally get into a cardiology fellowship. And the interesting thing about cardiology, why I ended up again. I was less certain about that than about my sort of aviation sort of dreams. And actually in my training when I was in, because before you do that, you have to do internal medicine for three years. It's a long, long journey. It's, if I count the years of undergraduate, and I had two undergraduate, and then I went to graduate school, and then, um, and then medical school, and then you do three years of internal medicine, and then another three years of cardiology. But I found when I was doing my general medicine, and even the EAD, they'd always call me, like, because I really, as distracted as I get about other things in life, when something really, I have this just ability to just really hone in and focus. And flying's a lot like that, too. You know, there's the part where you're just kind of out there flying and you're on autopilot. But when you have a bad crosswind or when you have uh, multiple targets and things of that, something, there's a certain magic that happens where you, it's, a, it's very powerful. And I think many pilots would, can tell you that too. Something really happens. It's a great kind of energy that happens that you um, can really just hone in and focus. So cardiology was that alternative. And, um, and uh, I always wanted to be the guy leading the code and things of that sort. But I still had this desire because being in this area, I, I really still wanted to be a maniac. And I was figuring out how a way to reconcile. I, mean, I couldn't be a, like a, a pilot, but I could be a flight surgeon. So this thing, I was in medicine, so I could be a flight surgeon. And then, um, so I actually interviewed here and it really, it probably would have been about 19, um, 87, 1987, 1990. And I came up here and I had my interview. I actually got fingerprinted. I had my physical exam and I quote unquote passed the colorblind test, <laughs> uh, which you could never pull off nowadays. And there's you know opportunity to be actually a pilot, flight surgeon and things of that sort. And, and then again, I, I choose this part not to go into the details, but it, it was it was uh, right about when this was supposed to happen. There was there was an internet, and uh, I had to go back. I start. I came. I started. I was about to start this cardiology fellowship. It was extremely extremely competitive to get into, and we probably like two spots for every two hundred applicants or something like that. And so there were I, there were a bunch of things that happened in my life and my wife's life at, at that point where I had to not follow through and I couldn't jeopardize losing my cardiology fellowship and and so then life happened and um, I went through my fellowship I had two kids and two wonderful daughters and so if you don't mind if I just cut you off just for a second sir so what was that like was that crushing for you I mean you said earlier uh, that was yeah. kind of your dream right yeah 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 it was very it was it was it was it was very disappointing because if it was just me and my life or whatever, I would probably still have followed through, but I would have probably lost a lot of, a lot of, it's, it's funny to think back what would have happened, but I knew what I had to do and I don't really have any regrets about it. So I went through my fellowship and, um, and they called me a few times, but I didn't do like final, sign the final papers or whatever like that. And then um, that was pretty much it, but it never really left me. It was always like part of me of still wanting to be up here and be one of the maniacs and be in the Air National Guard, main Air National Guard. So, um, so then it's someone who's just listening. This is young. It's hard to believe that 20 years can go by, and that's really almost what was about 20 years. It was, it was about 20 years went by, and uh, fortunately, because of being a physician, and I am for those of people who know me, my my I'm in great condition and, and I've always been a good athlete and I've always been very healthy and grateful for that so but as a physician you can get in later and I a uh, couple of times I just really never had the break and then when my when my daughter was old enough to go to college 
And it was pretty much, and also I think I was very uh, motivated after 9-11 that it was still just tearing away that even though in certain ways I still serve and I, I'm taking care of patients that depend on me, it still was not the fulfillment of what I needed from a patriotic standpoint to really just, you know, people, the people who I work with, they just don't appreciate what it really takes to create a world that we, that we, we live in here in this country. And I come from a, my brother was in the army for 10 years, enlisted. My dad was enlisted, World War II. My father-in-law was in the Navy. So uh, so I just felt, and actually my, I have a brother-in-law who, uh, who served, and it, it still just didn't feel right for me. It was something that I needed to do, and or I would just really not hate myself. So anyway, I, I, I don't really know exactly what, what, what what who who told me I had a contact but I was taking my daughter to college and I tell the story what I was told yesterday was is that and I, I still remember this um, like it happened yesterday but we pulled off at Portsmouth I needed to we were taking her down she got in some school in upstate New York so we were driving her down there and I stopped in New Hampshire um, in Portsmouth and I was fueling up and there was the main state air show and saw you know, formation of Blue Angels flying over and tankers flying over, and I, um, and I, uh, I just my my wife was in the car, and and I I finally just something clicked. I, this is it. I said, this is. I have no more excuses. I've finished all my training. I've, kids are taking care of their college. You know, they're going, and I've got to do this. So I basically dropped my daughter off and although I was certainly thinking about her and her college I was mostly overwhelmed with this need to just finally have this chance to do what I need to do and so when I got back I do a lot of teaching too and I write and do some research so I was about to leave to do some presentations and I knew that if I then mentioned to my wife at that point that uh, that this is what I'm going to do, the, the, the conversation would have lasted about a sentence because it would have just it wouldn't have gone very well positively. Not that my wife is, and as I said, also is not supportive, but just emotionally the fact that uh, now finally, like where kids are away, that now I'm going to be away. I, and I take call pretty much once a month anyway of a weekend to call. And, and I do work 70, sometimes 100 hour weeks. So besides taking call, I was now going to be up at guard for, um, for a, a weekend. But, so what I did was in my intellectual way, I wrote this like three page dissertation or four page or maybe five page of outlining all with references of why it was really important for, for me to do this. And it was really going to be good for us and our relationship. And, um, and I left it in our closet and I took off for my seminar, you know, and then I told her that because I've known my wife since college. So and she's always known that this is something that I wanted to do. And that gets back to the whole theme is something it. it Everyone's path is different and unique, and uh, there's a time that's right for everyone. And you want to try and it, it's not always on the way that you want it to be, and the timing the way that you want it want it to be. And uh, but but if you are patient enough, and you don't get too uh, resentful along your path, then if it's really important to you, it will happen. So, I did leave her this uh, three to five page. And I, you know, I don't even know where that document is now. I should ask her, but, but I had to do some teaching, and I left somewhere to do this stuff, do some presentations. But I left her this, and I, I, I told her that it was. Uh, I left her a essay for her to read, and in the closet, and uh, I think it was stuffed in one of my shirts or something like that. And, um, and, and then when I got back, we spoke about it a bit, and. I don't really actually remember any bad things happening about it, but it is you know, when you t when you when you mention like I mentioned before, I still have a very uh, rigorous work schedule as a cardiologist, and then being on call for a weekend uh, and then working seventy odd hours a week or more, and then now being away another weekend is um, was a bit of a going to be a bit of a challenge now that our kids were gone and now that I was actually going to be away even more. And so anyway, that's I called. Uh, I stood Carol uh, Craig, I believe, as the recruiter, and she probably like couldn't believe this. You know, cardiologist was calling and wanted to join the international. And she was she was really actually she was really great. I have to say, she's very professional and was never pushy about it. And 
made sure all my needs were met and things. And I actually then found, talked with a couple of docs that were in the guard. And ironically, some of them were my uh, students. And, um, and so, and so I just basically uh, showed up and, and, uh, got to basically fulfill something that was really important to me and I really have no 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 regrets about it at all. I think the other part that what I was mentioning yesterday was that <clears throat> that when, when I came in there was clearly people people don't, didn't know me but you know because I was 55. So uh, they said you know, you got to go to officer's training school. You've got to, you know, and if you want to be a flight surgeon, you got to go to survival. And, and so, I, I don't know, you probably just want to be a general I, medical officer. So, um, but but um, those things didn't bother me at all. I, so I, um, I've been an endurance athlete, and I figured I could put up with it. If you really want to do something, you can do it. And I think that's the, the theme of this, that those things are just, there's always going to be obstacles. Someone's always going to throw tacks in your pathway, but you just sort of keep moving forward about it. We're our biggest enemy, and you know we're full of self-doubt. And when you find other people along the way that reinforce that, then I've said they're not your allies. You know, when someone else says you you, you can't do that or this is too much, or if it's something that you really want to do, then um, it's just um, you should just push on and take it as a challenge actually to make yourself better. So uh, I just figured that somehow I had to pull off Air War College, and um, and already with the crazy schedule that I have and. And again, my wife has been amazing through all this and putting up with this, where I've had essays and papers scattered at four o'clock in the morning, adding on to my other stuff to do it. Um, and so that is a major obstacle, but so, and my age is also, uh, is, a, is, is an obstacle to other people, but it isn't to me. And I hope to be that role model. When I went to officer's training school, I actually, um, I actually won the uh, athletic for physical condition, so I was actually with 25 and 30 years old, and, I, and at 55, I basically beat them all. So. Yeah, because you, you you're in that class or in that course, and you've got 22 year olds who are fresh yeah. out of college, yeah. and you were you were 55. Yes, and I actually won. There was a tap out with their that with their enlisted in, uh, um, fitness instructor. Where there's a tap out for uh, sit ups, so all the different flights they had like eight flights of someone they put their best guy up there to do push-ups and sit-ups and I I just wasn't gonna stop and I actually it was at the end of the thing every other flight they tap you know what I'm talking about tap out so you just they, they kept saying you know doing just just up up down up down so we just kept going on and then they kept tapping out all the flights and then I, and I just heard my group say go Rosie and I looked down and it was me against the this like 27 year old fitness instructor and he's like got him and they cheated for him a few times because and so finally he they tapped him out and um and so that so I so I guess again don't ages can also be a, a, a psychological or emotional barrier that people use that and I so I, I, ne I never let that and I didn't let people know how old I since most people it is hard to tell I, oh, how what my real age is but I didn't but when I was there I was with like 30 25 year old people well it's hard to believe and just sitting here now and having met having met you today because so that would be, are you 65 today sir I'm 63. 63 in a couple of months someone asked me how old you were i would have said 45 and i'm not just i'm not saying that to be nice like i did to an educated guess but i did ask the generals i said well you guys have been great and have been very supportive and who knows maybe we'll get another waiver but if there, I, if, I, if it works out right if it does you know maybe i'll push the envelope again but anyway so that really is uh, the story can i ask you one last question it's uh, a personal question if it's personal, then it's going to be off record. Right, exactly, yeah. And I, was, I, I kind of put you in a cage there with that one. After you went to pilot school and you got your, and I'm probably butchering the terminology, but once you got your pilot certification, did you feel complete? Did you feel like that was like, you, you made it and, or how did that work for you? Well, I don't have an air pilot for the Air Force part. Okay. I just have a civilian pilot's license. Okay. And I did even, um, again, just two years ago, I got my instrument rating, which I had something that I had put off. But I never feel satisfied. So, you know, I mean, I, I'm satisfied. I mean, yesterday was a very gratifying day, but then, then you're just trying to move on to the next challenge, right? Because that's what getting old is, 
is when you stop that, right? Definitely, if you uh, stop challenging yourself, and um, then you you don't get the fulfillment, and the the that's what keeps you young. So it's a, it's a disease in a way too. But so I don't know. You kind of asked me with like finally satisfied, so I'm never finally satisfied. I guess I probably could have guessed that, but it was kind of like, <laughs> yeah. I had to get it on the record, right? So. But yes, when you attain a certain level, there's a level set. It was a great feeling when I finished Air War College. I mean, it really, that was, it, was, it really was. And, um, and I thought I was pretty well done, too. So, and that's the other thing I do want to say. I, you know, I've had, literally, if you count the years, if you take, um, um, I actually did one year when I told you I went to Wisconsin and drove cab. So, and then I did another four years at Orono, that's five years. And then I did a year of graduate school, that's six years. And then I did another two years of undergraduate at Maine, that's in, in zoology, that's eight years. And then I did four years in um, medical school, that's 12 years. Then three years of internal medicine is 17 years. And then another three years of cardiology was 20 years. Right, and so and the reason I'm saying that is actually I, some of the courses and some of the education that I've had in the Air Force and some of the, have been as good as any that I've ever had. I mean, I really, I really, I really say that with sincerity. So I, I think that um, that um, some of the courses have been uh, superior. But yeah, so there are levels that you get to, and you get happy and you're satisfied, and then you got to move on. So coming from somebody who is constantly motivated or, as you put it, never satisfied in a way, um, and you're now at that 06 level, which is remarkable in itself, um, what's next? <laughs> um, what's next in my job here, you mean? Maybe just in general. I mean, it could be really anything. You must have another goal in mind or, or something that's uh, you know, president of the United States. I don't know. Oh, I, I don't know. Anything's possible. Sometimes, you know... And again, you, um, you, uh, you know, it's like the Paul McCartney thing of let it be or whatever. You try and you try and uh, put it into a jar, and in in your terms, and and it get it gets you kind of mishmash in there. So you just keep doing the right thing. You try and keep positive things. And you know they say you know good luck comes from hard work. And sometimes you know there are things out there that you don't that you don't know. The last question, sir, and that just to kind of tie everything back up, and we and you kind of briefed on this a little bit earlier too, but um, and you could take a second to think about it too. Um, but what would you say, given the position that you're in now and the trials and tribulations that you've encountered throughout the years, what would you say to any of the maniacs that may be in the same boat that you were in um, 30, 20 years ago? That when you when you when you knew you wanted to do something and it wasn't just in the cards at the time, is there any, what kind of advice would you give your fellow maniacs? Yeah, I mean, everyone, like I said, has a, a similar uh, story. Is is that sometimes, you know, things don't happen on the time frame and the time schedule that that you want them to happen. But again, don't lose sight of your dreams and your goals, and enjoy the ride along the way. And if this thing is really meaningful, it 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 will happen. You need to have an action plan, put it into action. But it's just, it's not going to happen on your time schedule. And, and sometimes you see people that it just seems like, why does everything just seem to fit and they just kind of move on? And, you know, there are people like that, but believe me, they're not always happy either. So, you know, do the right thing. Do, you know, what your heart tells you is important, but don't lose, don't ever doubt yourself um, and keep the dream alive and always sort of work towards including that in your future plans and at some point it will manifest itself and it'll be very powerful and it will happen so but along the way um, don't you know don't ever lose sight that it's still not possible for you to do because it that will sort of put you in a bad spot so so and, and put yourself and surround yourself around people who in um, sort of in, embrace that in you so and be sure to have an open dialogue with your husband or wife while you're at it right is there anything you'd like to add sir i really didn't actually anticipate i was going to be the chief of aerospace medicine again they said these things all of a sudden someone had to do it and i was in the position and i said so i stepped up to do it 
but it's yet another added layer of sort of responsibilities. But it is my goal when I want to do it. Once I'm going to do it, I want to do it a great job of it, and um, and and basically be as successful as I can as you know the chief of aerospace medicine and keep the docs being feeling like that there's someone allowing them to meet their goals and, and, and the younger people and the enlisted people are you know have someone to be able to that is actually really takes this seriously so that is my next goal for now and then we'll see where it takes me that's that and then you said any last thing that I wanted to say yeah anything you'd like to add add sir on top of that you're more than welcome to as an 06 it does get you thinking actually and I always have been uh, thinking more globally and I do I do hope there are other opportunities for me besides that uh, to sort of when to be able to interact at a more global uh, level and other things that that are important to just besides here locally and regionally but also globally and I, I I do hope for some opportunities in that regard as as I have become an 06 so thinking more just not just here on base but the bigger picture that's awesome sir I, I, I really do appreciate you you doing this on a Sunday a drill and and I also want to personally thank you for your service and this it's awesome thank you so much Thank you, Colonel, for doing the interview and sharing your story. It's funny that I've listened to the audio file several times now for editing purposes, and his story still shocks me. It's unreal. And that's all the time we have for this episode of the Maniac Radio Show. I'm Master Sergeant Andy Sinclair with the 101st PA shop here in Bangor, Maine. Don't forget to check out our new Maniac Minute video, as well as our Facebook and Instagram. We also have an app, a website, and of course, this podcast. I hope you all have an awesome drill weekend and please try to think about those three R's, resiliency, recruiting, and retention. Change may be inevitable. It might be scary at times, but if you know where or who to turn to for help, you'll be just fine.